Welcome to Behind the Scenes with Brian, the podcast covering everything from engineering, mining, and mine waste management to whatever else may be on our minds. Pop in your headphones and don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share. And now, here is your host, Brian Ulrich. everyone this is brian and this is behind the scenes with brian and today i'm joined by frederick bell who's the ceo of elemental royalties frederick how are you today very good thank you brian yeah and uh, we're recording this during the pandemic and hopefully things are it's not disrupting your life and business too much yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I, I was, as I just heard you saying that now, I was thinking you could uh, you could take the recording and, and put it in a sort of capsule, time capsule that they can open up in 40 years and hear about the time when people were locked in, locked in houses and unable to travel um, sort of, you know, in, in such a short space of time. But it's, uh, we've actually probably achieved more from a, in a business sense during lockdown. Um, oh. And on a personal level, I've, I've got married and become a father uh, during lockdown. So it feels <laughs> like you can do an awful lot, even when um, you're not allowed to go to the office or sort of, you know, meet other people. Yeah, isn't that amazing? I interviewed people in uh, London oh, a year ago or so, and uh, one of the ladies, she was sitting out in her backyard in her garden and I said, what, what is all that noise? And she said, it's the birds. The birds are coming back. And I thought, what a, what a wonderful thing to happen. Yes, yes. Well, um, I'm actually, um, I'm in London uh, at the moment and I'm coming to Toronto uh, this weekend for the first time since we became a public company. And oh, okay. um, there was a conference that happened in London this week, a mining conference, and uh, actually yesterday and the day before, and. It is the first time I have seen um, even friends in the industry in London. Uh, it's the first time I've probably seen a lot of them in two years. Oh, isn't and, that amazing? Uh, and you yeah. sort of you talk to people as if as if it as if they've sort of you, you've spoken to them really recently, and and then you forget the last time we saw you, we were a private company, and mm. in, in the last sort of two years, we've doubled the size of the company twice. We've listed in another country. It, it, sort of everything's changed, but it. Uh, it's um, time passes so quickly. It, it's gone in a flash. Yeah, isn't it amazing? Yeah. Well, Frederick, tell us a little bit about yourself, your uh, background, your education. Yeah, so I I am one of those who found their way into mining almost accidentally. Mm -hmm. I, I, I had a history degree, and I okay. think as is quite common in the UK, often people do arts degrees at universities, whether it's history or English. Um, even if that is not the subject you intend to go into. And I probably thought I would end up in a finance role in, in London. And um, I, uh, I had done some work experience for a few years at university for various junior exploration companies. And it was, um, it was, it was by accident that it was exploration and companies in the mining space. And uh, as a result of that, I, I had some connections network. And, and when I graduated, from university, um, I, I always remember I, I sort of got this opportunity to go uh, two weeks notice to an Australian company that had recently listed and I knew some of the people there and 
they needed someone short term. And I, I at the time, I was uh, essentially doing an internship as a real estate analyst at, at one of the banks. And I, I took this call in the far exit stairwell saying, Fred, would you like to come out to Australia? Um, we need you here in two weeks. <laughs> looking at projects in Australia and in Malawi. And I remember thinking, uh, yeah, I'm not really sure about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a couple of people, a small company, it's relisted recently. Um, and I remember talking to my parents at the time and my mum said, sort of, my mother said, this, this, this sort of mining sounds crazy. Do a nice safe job in, in sort of London. And, and uh, <laughs> my dad said, well, even if you wanted to be an analyst later in life, uh, you, know, you would get experience on being from the public company side that probably other people your age wouldn't have. So even if you did it and wanted to go back on the financial side, you, you could always do that and you would have just a different string to your bow. So I moved out to Melbourne uh, with two weeks notice um, and I, um, I spent a year there with a, it was a uranium company. Um, it would have been a, the main asset would have been a satellite for, for a uranium mine in, in Malawi, Paladins Kailakira. And, um, and it was, it was actually my first sort of real full-time introduction into the mining industry. And I had a, I had a great time. I really enjoyed it. Um, one of the people I worked really closely with, Richard, actually set up Elemental with me. And he's, um, he's geologist by background, career in the mining industry. So, um, I think I was, I was hooked from there. And um, yeah, uh, it's a sort of various turns and, and tasks, but in the end, I, I set up a, a private company, a royalty company. Um, mm -hmm. And um, uh, Richard, who I knew from Australia, um, I got him involved. This was 2017, and uh, we made a few acquisitions privately, a few private fundraising rounds, mostly people in the industry, um, and listed it in July 2020. Um, and so, fast forward to today, and um, I have spent the last 18 months as a, the CEO of a Canadian public company, mostly working from my bedroom at home in, in London. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, finally getting out to uh, getting out to Canada recently and meeting some of our uh, shareholders, investors, um, and you know, I think a lot of the, uh, the Canadian mining scene. Yeah, uh, that's amazing. And there was a, a uh car executive here in the U.S., Lee Iacocca, uh, he he gave advice, if, if you don't know what to study, just pick a liberal arts degree, and it'll, it'll give you the basis for just about anywhere. And so I think that's kind of what you did and what you were mentioning, that maybe your specific um, yes. degree doesn't matter all that much, except maybe in the beginning. And, and, and yeah, I think that's I think that's actually true. And I I actually now looking back on it, um, I I do think that history was an incredibly useful degree for for a, that's applicable across a lot of different um, positions and roles. And um, I think one of the core skills in in history is you're really evaluating sources, and um, I think you're you're almost going back to the original source material. And you're, uh, you're checking the facts yourself, yeah. and you're not relying on second-hand opinion, third-hand opinion. And I think that's a skill that's been incredibly useful in the mining industry because you know, a lot of these projects, a lot of mines, they are not brand new mines. They are mines that have been around um, you know, either from Roman times, medieval times, Elizabethan times in, in the UK, um, but all the way through history. And uh, 
it's it's amazing how much you can find out just by 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 going through the history of assets and i think going back to the original source material the original people who worked on it um and i think you can learn an awful lot uh, through that so so those are some of the history skills that actually i i didn't think i would really use again but i found them incredibly useful throughout my career yeah that's kind of a coincidence you mentioned the romans and i've got on my wall behind me a mining map of the roman boundary mines i think it's in wales oh really fascinating yeah yeah, yes. yeah. And, and um that's that's amazing i was shown um a while ago some prospectuses for companies in london um i think it was in the sort of uh, uh mid 1800s and they were um mineral exploration companies looking for you know it was gold projects i think in south america and um i got shown some of these and what was the most amusing part of it was how similar they were in parts to a prospectus today yeah and i sort of looked at it and thought probably the lawyer then passed it on to the lawyer after him who passed it on to the lawyer after that <laughs> on, you know there's a there's a few more disclaimers around covid and yeah. uh yeah. privacy data but actually the fundamental building blocks of that prospectus are the same as for a company in the 1800s that was sailing to the other side of the world and going to explore some uh andean copper mines or uh, Mexican silver deposits. So I thought that was uh, that was fascinating, and, and seeing how they described the projects to people then uh, versus how they do now, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's lovely to look back on that. Yeah, yeah. So you you mentioned you went from a uh, a mining company to forming your own royalty company, but you you left some stuff out in there. Like what what inspired you? I mean, that's a big change. Yes. What what led to that? Well, I suppose I um uh, to fill in the gaps, and I, I didn't want to go into too much detail. Um, but to fill in the gaps, when I when I left Australia, I um I had actually taken on a shell company in London, and if I look back on it now, I'd say it was a pretty bold move for a um, someone in their early twenties. Yeah. Um, this company had no money, no assets. I was doing it while I had a pretty full-on job in Australia. Um, so probably between the hours of 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. in Australia, um, sort of keeping it alive in London. <laughs> I moved back to London and um, I, uh, I, I essentially, I, I had to find some projects for this company. And um, it was, uh, I didn't have the best connections. I didn't have a lot of experience. I didn't have a technical degree, um, but I was able to uh, essentially look at projects that some of the you know the best thing I, I sort of thought is is looking at some of the projects that the big companies had that didn't necessarily meet scale for them and um it was two projects in northeast ghana that rangold had had and uh, actually they didn't drop the projects for really technical reasons it was um they bought world-class kabadi gold mine in in drc um after the gfc and um they they I think they paid 500 million for it. And at the time they dropped a lot of their exploration ground in Tanzania and Ghana. And the logic was, if we can buy a world-class asset for you know, 500 million, then there's no point really us doing exploration. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, very early exploration that will take a decade in, in, that, in that kind of a market, because it was a, it was a fire sale. And the big companies could go and use their balance sheets to buy the assets they really wanted. So um, I, I took this, um, it was a shell company and, and got 
um, some directors uh, some raised probably uh, half a million dollars US in total across one or two fundraising rounds, took it to list it in London. Um, actually, and it, it wasn't public at the time, but we had a um, one of the, um, it's now one of the top 10 gold miners. It was a mid-tier sort of then, but um, they were going to come in as a, a cornerstone shareholder um, when we listed the company. Um, and in the time I was doing this, uh, I was the only employee. Um, I was sort of doing all the roles myself. Yeah. Um, I did occasionally think it was slightly mad, um, but it was also experience that I thought, you know, not many people my age at that point got. And uh, the waters in in the sort of mining space, and you know, um, I was I was mentioning um, you know, sort of a fire sale of assets that went on, and um, at the time I was taking this to market. Um, the valuations on particularly exploration companies, but even some of the mid-tiers, they were coming off so fast um, in that 2013, 2014, 2015 period that essentially as quick as you could add value, it was being taken away. And so there was some, a good example in Northwest Ghana near where we were of a $120 million company. It had a 2 million ounce resource and they went to being a 12 million market cap company in a few months, probably. Mm. And, and there was one near us that was sort of similar, down 90% had listed a year before. So by the time we took this to market, the valuation was probably 80% less than it would have been. Yeah. Um, sitting there thinking at this stage, wow, I've done all this work. We haven't even, we've raised some money and, and the projects had some work done in it from Rangold and we're fortunate to have all of their data, but we haven't even got started and we've lost 80% of our value <laughs> sort of overnight. And um, I remember thinking that, you know, unless you are in a position personally to really uh, invest in the project um, and sort of maintain your stake, this is a problem with exploration and the junior part of mining is, and the biggest risk is dilution. And if you get diluted early on, then even if you do make a discovery and even if you are fortunate and you do very well, um, you still won't necessarily make reap the rewards because you you weren't able to sort of carry your own weight and carry your own position and so um that company um it it did subsequently get listed and we merged it with another private company but at the time i thought well um to be honest i could keep doing this for another two or three years for not much yeah, reward yeah, yeah. or actually i should go and work for a bigger company and bide my time or if i set up another company i want to do it in a business model that avoids a lot of those pitfalls of an early stage exploration company in the mining space and um and uh that is where elemental was born because i looked at the royalty model and thought well we can have a private cash flowing royalty company um and elemental has been cash flow positive from day one um and and then we can really you know we can we can take the company to a point where we choose when we list yeah. And, um, and that's what we were able to do. So we, by the time we listed, we had a diversified portfolio of producing royalties. And that has always been our differentiator. Um, there isn't another junior royalty company out there, even a, a sub-billion dollar royalty company out there with 80% uh, of their portfolio on producing assets. And I think that is our, you know, our USP, our unique selling point, that we have diversified revenue from the outset. And you know, we've been able to double that year on year um, and, and we have a portfolio now that allows us to, to invest that money into new royalties as we go. And so you don't get diluted in the same way. And, um, and so really, I think you know, if, I, if I were to 
sum it up, I would say that my experience at the junior end of the market, um, it, it taught me some lessons early on and going through a, you know, a bad cycle in the mining space early on, I think gives you that, those, that perspective um, that I, I, I'm sure I will look back on and I, I do already, um, but as I get older I'm sure I will more and, and, and think that actually I was, I was fortunate in a way to learn those lessons early on. Um, because a royalty company, one of the great things about it is you can actually invest through the cycle. And, um, and you know, because we are cash flow positive, um, we have access to credit facilities with the banks, it, it enables us to, um, to keep it, you know, keep building out the portfolio and growing. Um, whereas I think in, in a cyclical industry like mining, um, you know, otherwise there are years, if you're an explorer or developer and you have a 10, 10 year time frame. To, to building the mine, you are dependent on the capital markets for that period. So I think that's um, that is the uh, the detail uh, behind how I uh, how I got to where we are today. Yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 uh, interesting. So you, you uh, spoke about West Africa. Is that where most of your investment is, or, or are you spread out? So we're actually the majority of our portfolio is in Australia. Mm. Um, both by the number of royalties and, and the, the value um, and I think very important to have tier one jurisdictions um, as, yeah. as a core part of the portfolio yeah. but we do have um, we do have some royalties in uh, Mexico, Chile um, and, and notably Burkina Faso, um, Southwest Burkina Faso and um, some of those assets are um, I think they will be very high quality very long life mines and to give you an example uh, the Wanyon royalty we have in, in southwest Burkina Faso it is one of the assets in Endeavour Mining's portfolio and mm. Endeavour is one of the top 10 gold mining companies globally um, and, and that is a brand new mine that came on stream at the end of 2019 and if I look at that today it, it maybe has a, a roughly decade long mine life but crucially it's a thousand square kilometer license package Wow. So um, actually, if you were to look at other assets like that, um, I think you would you would typically see that they are multi-decade mines. And I think um, this definitely has the potential to do it. And the great thing as a royalty holder is is clearly one of the biggest advantages is is you never have to pay towards future exploration. And so Endeavour, as an example, I think they're spending about $35, 36000000 million on exploration alone. Um, to the end of 2025 um, at our mine and uh, at Wanyon and, and we will get the benefits of that um, in terms of discoveries and, and future you know, resource growth. So, so that's one of the key benefits there and I, I sometimes think that um, in some of the emerging jurisdictions you, you get really uh, good geological opportunities, um, very prospective ground that hasn't had the same work and if you can blend that with some um, some Australian Canadian assets. I think um, I think that positions you in a really good place. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, your company made a profit uh, last year during the pandemic, and and I I don't know if that would have been the expected result, especially during the pandemic. What do you what do you credit that to? Well, I, I think broadly speaking, um, you know, we have a we have a pretty lean team, and I think that um, again the the key differentiator for the company is is just our 
a core portfolio of producing assets. And, and so what that enables us to do is, is um, we, we should be cash flow positive, um, as I said, um, on an ongoing basis. And, and that just means that every year we have money to deploy into new royalties um, without diluting shareholders. And the management and directors are still 16% shareholders. So we really think about it um, in the way that owners do. Um, yeah. Not just employees, and so we are incentivized to say, "Hey, you know, instead of issuing another hundred million shares, why don't we use some of our revenue to buy some new royalties?" And and that way, actually, we're not we're not diluting anyone. And um, I think that's that's a key differentiator as well. And having built this company from the ground up, and our first acquisition was uh, it was a two million dollar royalty. And uh, we, we, we could only afford a million dollars of it. So we syndicated it with a mining private equity fund. It was a very good acquisition. We were repaid in under two and a half years. Um, but uh, if you fast forward to our last acquisition that we closed early this year, um, it was with South32, a spin out from BHP, mm. Billiton, the world's largest mining company. Yeah. Um, and, and that was an acquisition that was, that was $55 million. And so um, it's, we have we've been able to scale up the size of the portfolio and the size of the acquisitions um, very substantially um, over that time. And I think the benefit um, and, and the reason we've been able to do that is because because of the high quality assets we have. Um, it enables us to, to raise money both at an institutional level and the top 20 shareholders probably own 70% uh, plus of the company. Wow. Um, it, it enabled us to, um, you know, to raise significant amounts of money you know, from institutional long-term shareholders, um, because the quality of our assets um, is is at that level. And actually, the easiest, I think it's, I think it's relatively speaking, easier to go out and buy 40 exploration royalties. What it's quite hard to do is go out and find producing royalties. And if you looked across the mining space as a whole, you might see the same thing. You might see 2,000 exploration projects and 20 mines. And so clearly, the value on having royalties on, on operating assets is 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 enormous. And I think um, for us, starting with that as a basis of our portfolio, um, that's that's really where our, our strength comes from. And I think the fact that we've been able to do that from a standing start um, is, I think, it gives you an idea of, 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 I think, the opportunities that we have ahead of us. Now that we have meaningful revenue, we can deploy going forwards. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So how do you monitor and predict future trends within the mining stock market industry? Um, <laughs> that is a very good question. Um, <laughs> I I mean, I always, I always, I so I graduated in 2009. So um, uh, that was, uh, I think, in the midst of the GFC. <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah. and uh, I my first job in that Australian mining company was a uranium company and that was in 2010-2011 and uh, Fukushima happened in that period mm, yeah um, and, you know really that, the fell out that, of the uranium market yeah that so, would have been hard to predict yes and so I went from you know the GFC into that happening the uranium market and then I had the experience of a few years where really there was no money in the resource sector um, very little money available for early expiration um, and then over the last 18 months uh, as we all know we've had COVID which 
I don't think many people would have predicted. And so right. I, um, I, I almost think over the last decade, really, 11 years or so, I look back on it and I think maybe I shouldn't try and predict too much going forwards. <laughs> if you buy good quality assets that are that work today with good quality management, yeah, um, then I think that probably gives you the best uh, optionality going forwards. And, and optionality is always a key word with royalties because you know, we are um, sort of piggybacking um, on, on, on these operators at these, these assets we have. And so um, we're fortunate in that we are, um, we, we get a lot of the value from what they're, from the work that they're doing and, and from what they're able to, um, I think, add on these mines. And, um, you know, if I look at it in specifically, and we're mostly exposed to gold, if I look at it at a gold level, um, I, I do think that governments, take the UK as an example, we have run a deficit, I think, um, 19 of the last 21 years. And um, the two years we ran a surplus, I think the government did their best to, to spend it as quickly as possible um, and, and sort of get back into uh, into borrowing again. And, and, you know, when you can print money and you can borrow from the Bank of England at half a percent or 0.25 of a percent, it is almost uh, it's almost too easy. But the problem is you you can't do that forever, um, uh, as we all know. And um, I think that uh, the longer governments maintain deficits and I think the longer people avoid addressing the difficult issues on spending and and budgetary constraints I actually think that's a very positive environment for gold and the fact that a lot of people in and I maybe I call my generation 30 to 40 um, I think a lot of the you know the fact that a lot of my friends colleagues people I went to university with um, they don't really talk about gold and and they don't talk about the fact that we have been borrowing money for the last 10 years and you know none of us would do that on a personal level um but but when it's sort of removed two degrees of separation to the government um i think it's very easy to to sort of forget about it and i think if you went around and asked people 10 things that they would like the government to spend money more money on i think they could do that very quickly i think if you went around the same 10 people and said find 10 things where you have to uh uh reduce the budget i think people would find it difficult and that's that's natural um we all continually improve the world and and um and and you know improve healthcare, education and, and infrastructure quality of life you know increasing over time but um i think that uh you you've got to keep that sort of in pace with what the budget allows and and technology over time will increase the standard of living but um, I think where we are now, uh, you, you've clearly seen the increased expansion in, um, in, in government spending and, and money printing, really. And so I think that, at a general level, is, is very positive for gold. Um, but that's as, that's as much as I sort of tend to, uh, as far ahead as I tend to look. Yeah, yeah. So most of your assets or gold do you, are you in any other commodities yes yeah, so we have some pgms which is um mm. palladium and platinum yeah. and then we also have mineral sands which you would see in your um if you're painting your house in um uh and uh and sort of ceramics so um the portfolio though is a, it's about 95 percent gold silver so we're definitely a gold-focused royalty company. Yeah. Occasionally, 
we see good opportunities and and that mineral sands royalty we bought from acacia before it went back into barrack so mm. it was a, it was a very non-core asset for them um and it was yeah. a royalty that repaid us in under two and a half years and is still producing today so sometimes you see opportunities like that and um you know the people you know the mine and it's just a it's a very good opportunity so i think um we we always keep our eyes open for for good um good opportunistic acquisitions i think uh in terms of commodity exposure we have looked at um we have we have looked at a, a few other um minerals uh, copper among others um in addition to gold but but we'll always be a gold focused royalty vehicle yeah so frederick why would i or, or anybody uh want to invest in a mining royalty i i think the the, the best yeah, the best uh, <clears throat> argument I would I would put forward is that you don't need to be an expert in uh, a certain region of, of Ecuador or of West Africa, or you don't need to know the geology you know, to detail in a, in a mine in um, in Canada or Australia. Uh, you don't need to worry, I think, about as much about the inflation concerns and in, in costs and prices. And um, with a royalty company, you are getting top line exposure. So that is percentage of the gross revenue typically um, from multiple mines in multiple jurisdictions with multiple different operators and so um, what that does is if you look at a maybe a, a, a few billion dollar market cap mid-tier miner they might have three different mines in operation um, well we already have five producing royalties um, and that will be six going into next year mm. and so already as a hundred million market cap company we're more diversified. Um, we've been able to double our revenue every year going into um, up till 2020 so far, which has been announced. Um, yeah. I think we probably have 50% or so revenue growth going into next year. Um, and I think that that is something that is much easier for a royalty company to do than a miner. So you, you get that diversified exposure, um, which really reduces your risk, but you also get that leverage. And one of the great things is that and we know this for a fact is, is most mines, they may start with the 10-year mine life, but they normally go for a lot longer. Um, and that's oh, either yeah. because yeah. of discovery or because commodity prices increase or technology improves. And with a royalty company, we can be repaid on a mine after five years. And then for the rest of its life, it keeps paying us. And we keep using that money to either build a portfolio and buy new royalties, um, or at some stage in the future, I think, um, you know, we're probably going to start thinking about dividends as well. So I think that is, a, that's the great benefit of a, of a royalty company. And I think um, the reason you would go for an elemental um, is because at our size, 100 million market cap, we have shown that we can grow the company very quickly. We have a track record that from when we were private, um, I think we've probably increased the share price five times from our first fundraise. Every fundraise we've done has been at a higher price. Management directors, still major shareholders. Um, and we haven't talked about the board, but we've got some very well-known, um, successful mining entrepreneurs um, on there who um, I would describe as serially successful. Um, <laughs> multiple companies have sold from hundreds of millions to, to billions plus. Um, and I think that when you put all of that together um, in, a, in a small royalty company like us, um, it's actually a really potent combination um that that i think um if, if you've been looking for precious metals exposure i think is, is a really good way to play it yeah that's uh, really interesting yeah good good uh, good to know
Eric, we've covered a lot of ground and discussed a lot of topics today, and I don't want to take up a bunch of your time. I know it's a little bit later in the day there in London, but I was wondering if you could uh, leave us with any pearls of wisdom or any key takeaways. I I think one thing I have um, I've generally found in my uh, in my career uh, that I think is has been really helpful is good people tend to introduce you to other good people um, yeah. whether yeah. you're talking about in a professional sense or you're talking in an ethical sense and and hopefully you're talking in both <laughs> but um I have found that you know, good people tend to make other introductions to good people and, and tend to associate with each other and so if you get good people involved in the company um, if you're involved even in your personal life you know, people who you admire you get on with you like I think it I think it is a virtuous circle um, and I think over time that that really pays off and um, you know, one thing someone always said to me is you can um, it takes a career to make a reputation but you can also lose it overnight and so yeah. I think always trying to do things the right way and um, and working with people who are uh, in, in my case older more experienced who have been around and and um, you know I think uh, her, her sort of um, have that that track record and, and that uh, credibility I think I think that's that's really important yeah that's that's terrific that's terrific uh, yeah and, and uh, like I said, uh, I know it's getting later in the day there in London. I really appreciate you joining me and sharing this information and, uh, and making yourself available for the for the interview. Oh, it was very enjoyable. Thank you for having me on the show, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. It's been my pleasure. And uh, maybe once airplanes start flying around a little bit more, we'll actually meet face to face one of these days. Yes, <laughs> that would be brilliant. All right. Thank, thanks again, Frederick, and have a great day. Thanks, Brian. Well, that's it. I'm Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. Until next time, keep on rocking. <laughs>